Hey, welcome back, everybody. John Porteous of the Lovells Township Historical Society here, and you're listening to the Backcast Podcast. This is our hot stove edition. Uh, this will be our second episode. Uh, my co-host, Richard Perry, and I will be speaking with Bryce Metcalf, who's a commercial forester. So without further ado, on to the show. Podcast number whatever, uh, Bryce Metcalf from Metcalf Forestry is with us for this one, and we're going to talk about commercial forestry and some tax programs, and he's going to tell us about uh, logging and forestry in general, and we're going to get smarter. Excellent. So go ahead, Bryce. Thanks All for right. joining us, Bryce. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm a consulting forester in Grayling. Uh, I've been working here for, oh, I'm getting close to 20 years now. Um I graduated from Michigan Technological University. Uh, that's where I met my wife. She's also a forester. Houghton? Uh, yep, Houghton Hancock. Hey. Steve um, Johnson. <laughs> and uh, originally I grew up in uh, rural Maine, and um, and then I went into the Navy for a few years, and when I got out of the Navy, I, I, I decided to get into forestry. Just because as a kid, I was outdoors all the time. My dad would take me on these epic canoe trips in northern Maine. We'd be just gone in the wilderness for two weeks straight. The whole family, little kids and all. Um, oh, that's great. And, uh, you know, I just, and I, it was a small farming community. And when I was in the Navy, I was, you know, in these, in and out of these ports, big cities, big industrial areas. And there's no trees on the ocean. And <laughs> this one time I was home on leave with my dad, and he is doing some volunteer work for the Nature Conservancy. And we had to go out and look at a piece of land that he was supposed to kind of monitor for the conservancy. And we met with a conservancy forester. And and I, I was on leave, so I was just tagging along and started asking this guy about what he was doing for a living. And once I got past the point where, so you're getting paid right now? And we're out walking around in the woods. And I thought, oh, all right. <laughs> That's the way to go. Um, and he explained to me that, um, you know, his brand of forestry was a little different and that most forestry is sort of what we call industrial or commercial forestry, which involves harvesting trees. And... So I grew up in Maine, and the timber industry is big. And I'm like, yeah, but the trees grow back, right? Well, yeah, yeah, you just got to do it right. Okay, so we just got to do it right. And it sort of took off from there. And you could say I'm in love with the, the concept or the idea that, first of all, we as humans have to harvest trees. We've been doing it since time began, since we started walking on the earth. And that's not going to change. It's not going to go away. And um, so, how do you do it sustainably? And mm -hmm. how do you do it so you can still enjoy nature and still provide home for the critters? And so, forestry—it's a—it's an environmental field, but it's about finding practical solutions to real-world problems. Um, and it's not perfect, and there are certainly problems but we have figured out how to manage the forest sustainably and we're successfully doing it uh, across the whole nation. When, when you talk about that, Bryce, it, 
in, in talking about managing the forest, I'm assuming that depending upon where you are um, or what species are growing where, would that diversify approaches? And, or if, like I know there's a bunch of guys that uh, love to grouse hunt. Yep. And, and you hear a lot about managing properties for a species. Yeah, I know Richard grouse hunts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I friend, just shaking my head, yes. Friend, friend of a friend, yeah. Yep. <laughs> but can you talk a little bit about that and what that means? And you, you hear these concepts that people talk about, but you, I'm never really sure if I can put it all together end to end, and so maybe you can well, help us with that. When you were here earlier and delivered some firewood for us, we talked a little bit about that, and I was whining about all the slash that was left yeah. on the forest floor, and you talked about that some. Yeah, so, well... So I, I, I'm a consulting forester, so I work for private landowners who own, you know, a lot of them own pretty large chunks of forest, but, I, you know, I've got some clients with 20 acres and others with thousands. Uh, and I've also done contract work for the DNR and the Forest Service, uh, and I've done work on industry-owned forest lands. Um, but the first thing that, that you have to look at as a forester is, is what you've got. And so we get to a property... First thing we're doing is looking at satellite photographs and making a map of the place. And we can get most of the map done just by looking at the satellite photos, but then you got to actually walk it and fine-tune it and then see what you can see on the ground. And so we take that, that piece of land and we split it into habitat types, which could be forest types. So you could have a, an area of mature aspen, and maybe it's uh, on the edge of a lowland conifer swamp well that's excellent potential gross habitat so that gets filed away in my in my mind <laughs> as, I, as I'm out there um, and then once I've kind of got a figured out the lay of the land and I know what's where uh, I will talk to the landowner and this might happen simultaneously but I'll talk to the landowner and what are their goals and objectives uh, why do they have this piece of property and you'll get a lot of people are into hunting, but not all of them. I've had clients that are bird watchers. I've had people that are hikers. Um, you know, I'll have, a, when we get a larger tracts of land, you may have multiple owners and they have multiple objectives. Yeah, okay. Um, and, uh, you know, hiking, recreation, it could be all sorts of things. Um, now, if their goal is, uh, you know, we want to draw a line around this place and nobody goes in it, and we're going to protect it, protect it, protect it. Well, they don't need me. That you know, okay. my services are not required. Just do nothing, and you're all set. Um, but if they, if there's, if they say things like, well, I want to create, improve the habitat for a certain animal species, or I want a healthy forest, which means they don't want to see trees fall down. Uh, or they want they have a tax burden that they have to pay, and they can't justify owning this piece of land unless they can meet that tax burden. Um, you know that's where where I come in. Uh, it, you know, in Richard's case, if he owns uh, a big chunk of land and he's got uh, some mature aspen next to a conifer swamp, and he wants he's tired of going grouse hunting and not seeing any grouse, well, uh, we got something that we can work with here. And um, if you uh, 
we can create the grouse habitat by doing a harvest. And for, for rough grouse, that habitat requirement is young aspen growth. And the way you get that is you clear cut it. It's a tree species that won't grow back unless you do a clear cut. If you do a selective harvest, you're going to grow a, a different group of tree species that, that can tolerate some shade, whereas aspen requires full sunlight. And then the lowland conifers comes in because grouse really like that, that kind of mix between conifers and aspen. In fact, while I'm doing this aspen clear cut, it might not be a true clear cut because I maybe come across of patches of young balsam fir in there and I want to keep that mm -hmm. and retain that. Um, and the idea is that five years later, the grouse hunter, well, on a day like today where, you know, it was quite cold this morning, single digits, I believe, mm -hmm. uh, those grouse are going to, they're going to be in those conifers hanging out and they're getting that windshield reduced because of that. Uh, it saves them a few calories that gets them through the winter. Sure. Uh, so, you know, there's a whole lot of different variables that go into it, and, and aspen is just one of many forest types, uh, you know, but uh, I, we're trying to figure out these goals and manage towards it. And, um, you know, revenue, timber revenue is certainly part of it, and it's certainly an important part, but it's not it's not the only part. In fact, I get a lot of clients that the last question they ask me is how much money are they going to make from the harvest? Hmm. Some of them it's the first question, but I'd say most of them it's, it's, it's the last question. Most of my clients, uh, and this could just be the type of people I get, but most of them, um, you know, first and foremost, they want a healthy forest and they want good habitat for wildlife and they want it to be sustainable. Okay. And then within those boundaries, yeah, well, now once we've accomplished that, sure, let's make some money. What, what does sustainable mean on a, in a natural setting, um, natural being relative, uh, the, uh, as it applies to regular property owners versus um, something that a, um, a commercial firm? That's a great question. Yeah. Uh, well, my definition of sustainable forestry is that we harvest trees and, and trees grow back. Um, now, but that could be a low bar. For example, I have a client, uh, they've got 2,200 acres, and they want to be able to do a harvest, one harvest, every year forever and uh, we've done one and a half laps around the property and we're still going so so far so good but a lot of our regeneration that we're getting is beach and ash now 15 years ago I, I would have said well I would prefer that regeneration to be sugar maple but well, I'll take what I can get and beach and ash will work well now Beach and ash don't have much of a future because of invasive diseases. I was just going to ask you, is that still an issue for the ash trees? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, so, you know, that, that bar has been, been raised. You know, you can, if you can say, well, what's sustainable? If, if you narrow it down to a specific cohort of trees that 
Well, that's a that's a much higher bar than okay. just any so old tree that fills in. What was the interval between cut and regeneration on those if you've been around? What, what? On that particular property, yeah. uh, I think we're at 14 years. 14 years. So yeah. you're, you're cutting for pulp, not lumber, right? Oh, we're we're cutting logs now. We really? the first went first wave through. We focused on harvesting low quality uh, timber, and everything that's out there is is saw timber now. It's it's hmm. a it's a northern hardwood forest, sugar maple and beech and basswood, uh, much better soil types than what we have here in Luzerne, and so you can have more intensive management because of the growth rate is is faster. Um, but uh, that particular client's in a good position in that they've got a lot of acres with really high quality timber on it. Wow, um, that's awesome. Yeah, so I mean, so far, so far we're, we're doing great uh, on that property, but as I said, uh, there are concerns. And, um, uh, but we just monitor the situation, you know, for that client in two years, I've got a, uh, well actually no, in 2022, I have to do a, uh, a new inventory because the old one's 10 years old. And this go around, I'm really gonna be focusing on uh, the regeneration of, of new trees. What's what's waist high and below as opposed to what's way up over my head. <laughs> when, when you're doing that and, and you're looking in, you know, you're envisioning the future, what's your time horizon? Oh, man, that's why you do this show. You've got these great questions. <laughs> so the time horizon of a forester is different than other people. Uh, I, I think in decades. I think well beyond my lifetime, and, and I have to because... The trees, if I get successful regeneration, those trees won't become mature in my lifetime. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you just have to have that outlook as a forester. especially you have if, to set that expectation with your client base? Oh, yeah. That, yeah, it's often that expectation does not line up with the clients. Um, <laughs> humans are, uh, you know, we, we're lucky if we can plan for next year. <laughs> Let alone well, we, 25 years from now. We do like that now. soda pop machine uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> type of thought. Push a button and result pops out. Yeah. You know, mm. I get some clients that can uh, adopt that mindset, but it's pretty hard for for some others, and some of them just never get there. <laughs> More of technology, you know, the cell phone idea comes into mind. The less willing people are to, you know, accept it, there's a time frame that goes beyond immediate. <laughs> oh yeah well yeah especially t in today's uh you know today's culture um where uh i mean i'll find myself i'll send a text to somebody and then 15 minutes later i'm impatiently awaiting the reply why haven't you gotten back to right me? now when i was a kid in the 80s you know you expected that reply to come in days or a week later yeah uh so uh, and, and then, you know, people have just, uh, there's less farmers. The farms have gotten bigger, which pushes out the smaller farms. And so there's, you have less people that are connected to the land, and they don't have that, that longer-term mindset. Um, but at the same time, it, you know, people think trees grow slowly and this and that. Actually, not really. I mean, if you take the growth rate of a, if you take a, the weight of an 80-year-old tree and divide it by 80, it's putting on mass far more than a than a person does. Well, that's that's a great <laughs> way to look at you it. You know, right? um, that's a good and way then to uh, and things change. 
pretty quick. You know, I'll go out to a, a stand and I'll be like, oh, you know, these aspen trees are mature and old and unhealthy and, you know, we should harvest them before they die of natural causes and utilize them. Well, one thing, you know, the client delays a little bit and then I get my schedule filled up and the next thing you know, it's three or four years before I get in there and whoops, uh, it's just force has changed the trees have already blown down and we're too late in fact just this week i was out on a property i wrote them a management plan three years ago two years ago i set up the timber harvest uh the harvest has been delayed for one reason or another wet weather and whatnot but i was out there scouting it out again showing a logger around and i get to this one area and this spot that we're supposed to harvest is turned into a beaver pond. <laughs> like all the trees that we're supposed to cut are underground. Oops. Oops. <laughs> and we're like, well, you know, should we try and make a skid trail through here? And I said, I don't think it's worth the effort. I think the in this case, nature won. We're just going to have to walk away. <laughs> Miller time. Man. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, it's not worth chasing after you know 10 15 acres of aspen that are on the other side of a beaver pond right <laughs> Do, in in having that time horizon and making recommendations for your clients is there ever and again admitting that i know nothing about any of this so apologies in advance but do you can you do a phased approach and say okay I'm going to try to help you with maybe some fast-growing trees that'll have a shorter lifespan while these other guys, you know, do their long-term haul. Do you, do you kind of mix the field that way at all? or? Yeah. Um, and then uh, set them up for another perhaps subsequent the, harvest? Or? Yeah, we, we certainly have, um, we may have multiple harvests going on with different or different stands are being treated at different times on the same property um the larger the property the more complex it gets you know if you get uh to um uh let me just pull a name out of a hat uh, the hiawatha hunt club up in the up um uh, forester called Grossman Forestry works up there and he manages their land and they've got, I don't know, 100,000 acres or something like oh that, gosh. you know. So they're, they're, their harvest schedule and timeline for stuff starts to get really complicated and at any given time there could be multiple projects going on at the same time. Um, and then you kind of, you know, I've got clients um, with, uh, uh, I've got this one client with 40 acres and their house is on it. So by the time you take out the house and the power line and the pipeline, you're down to 35 acres. Uh, but we're in there every 10 or 12 years. And uh, I've harvested, uh, I, the, the first forester harvested 30 years ago and then I've done two harvests in there on this property. Yeah. And it's still, still completely forested with good quality trees and he's paid for the land a few times. Um, so yeah, it, there's, a there's a lot that goes into that, but the, the biggest thing that I'm looking out for, and this kind of go, goes back to how do you supply society with, uh, wood products sustainably? The, the number one thing is you're identifying trees that are going to 
naturally die for whatever reason, and you're harvesting them before it happens and sending it to the mill and getting a check in return. Um, you know, that's your, your number one goal. Uh, and then you start getting into nuances, like, so you have a tree that, uh, I call it economically mature. It, it may not, um, it's not going to appreciate in value, but it could be capable of living another 100 or 200 years. Oh, wow. Um, and so that might be, say, a, a red pine tree that's 20 inches in diameter. If you leave it, it's actually going to decline in value, but yet it can live for a long time. So now you got options, you got choices, and that boils down to the, the landowner's goals. And oh, some okay. clients will be like, well, we want to keep that just because we like it. All right, that's fine, as long as they know what their situation is, that's their, their well, can call. You, can you be selective in that regard? Yeah. Can you say, okay, listen, these guys have another 100, 200 years, let's let more people enjoy them. Absolutely. We'll sacrifice the immediate capital gain on it but go over there where all that other stuff is and absolutely yeah you know if the if you got a you know a bunch of huge economically mature trees and they're right off of the parking lot or on the hiking trail i probably ought to keep them if they're on the back 40 and nobody's going to go back there well, maybe you want to cash them in okay um, you know but that, but that you know, I just think the basic goal is to try and cut most of the trees before they die. And you don't have to cut every one. In fact, you don't want to cut every one. Uh, dead and dying trees have their role in the ecosystem. There's a, a lot whole, of habitat. Absolutely. You know, uh, there's a whole host of... Actually, a dead tree supports more life than it did when it was alive. Um, here's an interesting little story. So when I was... Uh, probably before we had emerald ashborn beech bark disease... Uh, we would go into these forests, especially the northern hardwood forests, and the trees would range from you know, 6 to 14 inches in diameter, and they would all be 80 years old. There would be almost nothing in the understory. And the only dead trees were tended to be small trees, the little ones that were getting out-competed by the bigger Choked ones. Out. Well, under the canopy. Yeah, they were, under the, they were getting shaded out. And a lot of the management we were doing then was to go through and you could call it weeding. We were just harvesting the lower quality, smaller trees and trying to get more light on the healthy ones. And the biologists were advising us to, um, you know, they didn't feel like they had enough snags or uh, what they call it coarse woody debris, mm -hmm. uh, which provides habitat for various animals. And so they'd say, well, we'd like you guys to have to leave you know one or two snags per acre or, or, or whatever you know and our foresters really don't like waste so we would kind of grudgingly go along with it and they pick out a tree that that was big and gnarly and then we knew the logger didn't really want it anyways and uh, and then we would put a mark on it and the logger would girdle that tree with a chainsaw and then he would complain about having to work and not getting you know he's not making any money girdling it but he has to factor that into his his bid uh and so we'd create create these snags these artificial snags in the you woods you were creating them by killing yeah them themselves okay yeah before their time right okay uh, and so we've so we can help the biologists meet their you know their criteria for having dead snags in the woods okay 
Uh, and, and at the time, that's what we did. Well, now we've got, as I've been saying, we've got these two diseases coming through. Plus, our forests have gotten to the point where most of them are, a lot of them are 90 years old, pushing 100 years old. So the trees are getting, they're getting old, a lot of them. And there's a lot more mortality. And and now I go in the woods, there's dead trees all over. Uh, and <laughs> it seems kind of silly that we were doing that back then. Once but. they die, they go bad quick. Yeah. Because I know I got a few oaks I've been keeping my eye on out here that I wanted to cut. And, and just from one season to the next, I mean, it's surprising how much deterioration goes. Yeah, for... Um, surprising to me, anyway. Once a, once a tree dies, it almost immediately... Uh, the, the saw timber value of it just plummets, at least for commercial purposes. If you're working here in your wood shop, you can make do with it. But uh, if you want to sell lumber on a, on a large scale, they just do not want dead trees. Now, um, oak is uh, oak firewood's an anomaly in that uh, if this tree is dead, the firewood is more valuable than if it was alive because it's right. dried out. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. The green oak takes the years. The seasoning has already commenced. Yeah, the seasoning <laughs> takes you know two or three years, um, but the lumber of it is greatly degraded. So, like for an oak tree that's alive, you know, it might be worth fifty bucks, and then it dies, and it's just five the next year. So an oak tree that expired, say, year before it had leaves, but not a lot, and this year it had no leaves, and if I was to cut that and chop it up for firewood, we're looking at what two years before it's seasoned out. You think? So it it died uh, a year ago. Well, this year it didn't have any leaves. Yeah. Um, so. well, well, this is twenty twenty one, so it'd be next. Well, last year, so it lost its leaves sometime last summer. Yeah, it didn't blow. It didn't leaf out that last year. All right. Um, it's it's probably if you cut it up this spring. It'd be ready to go by fall, I think. Think so? Yeah, I oh, think wow. so, because it's already basically dried so out. You, for you a year. wouldn't have to go in and do as you had suggested, cre create your own fake girl and break the vellum and. No. Okay. No, it's already. Well, it's the leaves are gone. It's already dead. Okay. Yeah. I used to do all my own firewood dead stuff off the property, but then I got uh, lazy. <laughs> Start buying it. It's a lot of work. Like it's a lot of work. Yeah. But uh, you know, I don't mind cutting them and. It's risky uh, dropping dead trees too. Splitting them and you know, I got yeah. I guess gotta say since we're on a podcast that sure. um, uh, felling trees with a chainsaw is the most dangerous occupation you can pick. Nope, it takes so. I it is. <laughs> I mean, it, if they have a a bad winter out on the, on a major fishing ground, you know, uh, then then fishing will take the top spot. But otherwise, it's it's logging. And I've worked with many loggers uh we call them peace cutters if they fell a tree uh, by hand with a chainsaw instead of a machine we call oh, them okay. peace cutters okay. and uh, everyone that i've worked with has been to the hospital at some point in time mm, we got a couple of bent bars that'll testify to that too. yeah uh and dead trees are are the worst because the tops crumble and break as you fell it and they fall down on you yeah um so there's an evolution with loggers where uh, they might start out with a chainsaw, which, you know, it's a $400, $500 saw and some chaps and a hard hat and stuff. And then they, they go and fell timber and they can usually make some money at it. Um, and then, but sooner or later, at some point, their number comes up 
they can be good at what they're doing they can be very knowledgeable and cautious but it's just the it's the odds percentages so just for our listeners you know just not only do we have a lot of awesome local listeners but we've got folks listening from all over the place um when you're talking about that type of uh cutting that's that's different than the smiths down on oak street in suburbia right yeah yeah i'm talking about (laughs) okay a uh uh, a commercial logger who's filling yeah, just trees so people for are a getting living. The, um, but not a tree service it, in the suburbs, right? <laughs> uh, but anybody who's uh, cutting a tree down is is taking a big. Oh, risk. to be sure. Yeah. Um, but I'll, I've seen this evolution where they start out uh, with you know just a chainsaw felling trees, and then at some point they get injured, and their wife says, "Go and buy one of those machines." Oh, but honey, that machine's seven hundred thousand dollars. I I don't want to buy that. Well, everybody else is doing it, so figure it out. The <laughs> <laughs> next thing you know, they're they're in a in a machine, and the bank owns them, and they're they're working away. And some of them uh, makes are successful, and some of them some of them aren't. So loggers take big risks uh, physically, and then if they get if they're not willing to take the physical risk, it's a huge financial risk. Okay. Um, but. Uh, is there is there space for that? I mean, always the idle question, but let's say somebody coming out of high school, is this something you have to be born into, or is it something that, you know what, this would be interesting? And, and if maybe you treat wanna... it like farming, and I'll, I'll buy the infrastructure and, you know, or start to work on the... You know, oh, debt reduction. There yeah. Oh, a that. lot of these guys uh, that are working for logging companies, not the owner of the company, but they're running machines. There's processor operators that are making eighty, ninety thousand dollars a year. Okay. Uh, and they're living in northern Michigan, and they're, you know, so obviously their living costs are much less than it would be downstate. And they are doing um, it as processors, not as individual cutters. Right. They're employees. Okay. Uh, so, so there's a measure of benefit and a measure of safety there. Well, oh yeah, because well at that point, you know they're running a machine. They're in a, you know it's bulletproof. It's in a, they're in a cage. It's quite safe. Uh, they, they have to be careful when they're out working on the machine. There's certainly risks, but the uh, the physical risks are greatly greatly reduced when okay. they're in these machines. Um, in fact, you can't really afford an employee that's running a chainsaw. The, the insurance, the liability, the liability insurance is so high. If you pay that guy who's running a chainsaw 20 bucks an hour, you're going to pay the insurance company another 20. Uh, so we better be cutting some good timber if you're doing that. But, uh, and I know this because I used to run a logging operation. Well, I don't cut uh, trees here if my insurance company is listening. Yeah, 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 don't, <laughs> don't do that. But, um, but yeah, there's a good, you can make a good livelihood uh, uh, working in the woods. You're going to put in some long hours, and you know you got to be sharp. But most of it is on-the-job training. There really isn't any. There's very little education, which is a problem with our industry. We need it, but the universities just—I don't know—they don't—they aren't focused on that sort of thing. Is there? You know, it's interesting because at some point in times. A few of us were talking and curious, is there a program now at Kirkland 
for that might cover a, a portion of that? I'm not really sure what's going on at, at Kirtland right okay. now. Um, but there's definitely a need for, um, you know, an associate's degree in okay. logging and heavy equipment use. You know, I mean, they need to learn the basics of forestry, but also, you know, diesel mechanics and, you know, working on hydraulic lines. And this is, this is technical stuff. These guys are out there running machines that are, you know, as I said earlier, $700,000, $500,000 machines. Um, and, you know, if they break it, and they're down for the day, which happens all the time. Sure. That's it's a big deal. Money out of pocket. Uh, now, as far as uh, being a business owner and a logger, I wouldn't recommend that anybody dive into that. You know, they they want to... <laughs> like rod making. Yeah, go out there <laughs> exactly. and... You know, well, you started to mention that you had run... Did you run a crew or a company, or was it your own, or...? Yeah, so... Uh, I guess back in the 08 recession, um, I was working with a logging company. That, so one of the big mills shut down here, and they didn't have enough work for all their crews, so they moved a crew down to Kentucky, and they recruited me to help them talk to landowners down there and, and line up jobs for them. And one thing led to another, and I ended up buying out the, the company, and I ran it myself for a year. Um, and then I, I pulled the plug before I went bankrupt. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so what I learned is that I'm not a good logger, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I got some idea what's involved and, and what the risks are. And, okay. Um, but yeah, I had, I had a big operation for a while there. <laughs> um, but you know, that wasn't, I, I look back in it now, it was very stressful. I worked for a year for free. Um, but, uh. Uh, I'm glad it failed. Like, well, um, like most business people, I mean, it's not an automatic out of the gate. Yep. I'm going to hang a shingle up and. Right. Here, here it, I come, Wall Street. Here I come, right? You know, <laughs> yes. and um, but I, I mean, I was on to a. There was a real niche there that I was pursuing, but I just wasn't able to make it work. Um, and at the end, you know, the complexities of trying to keep multiple trucks on the road and and multiple pieces of machinery running and. Every time something breaks, it's a dis the decision is five thousand dollars, you know, and yeah, yeah, it's, you know, it's, and it's it's just, it's just tough. Blink your eyes, and, five thousand dollars, right? Yeah. And um, you know, that's why I would say you got to work your way into it. That was what I did not do, and uh, it, a lot of these loggers, I call them, I call loggers mechanics that work in the woods. Okay, they have an instinctual understanding of what to do when their machine breaks <laughs> well, it, it, it would seem so, that you've got to be your own first level help desk yeah it's, yeah <laughs> you just have no choice yeah, they're, they're pretty creative <laughs> hard-working guys uh, and I certainly got my respect and you know and I, I'm talking about this and mentioning this because I think the public at large considers loggers as just some some dummy out there because when I see a picture of him he's dirty and greasy and missing teeth but uh, running multi-million dollar businesses and there's a lot of these guys that you meet them you wouldn't think they got two pennies to rub together but when they show up at uh, the Ponzi dealership they just buy that machine 
mm-hmm. right then and there on okay. the spot. No financing. <laughs> it's pretty cool to be able to reach in the pocket and cut a check that way. Right, right. Cash tells the tale. Yeah. But, uh, you know, after that, I, uh, I said, you know what, I'm really, uh, I am a forester. That's what I'm here to be doing. That's what I'm good at. I think, uh, I really think that's what I was put on this planet to do. <laughs> right on. And, uh, you know, and I, I love it, and I got a lot of enthusiasm for it, and that's what I enjoy. <laughs> so the uh, the processing plant that just went in on Four Mile a few years ago mm-hmm. and started operation, I'm noticing, uh, you know, there's some places south of here, we're on Bald Hill Road, but where the slash is down so heavy, I mean, it was several years ago, you couldn't walk through there. Yeah. But I'm looking at where they're cutting over on 612 and some other places, and they seem to be doing a much better job of cleaning this up. I wonder, is that because the plants can use that uh, stuff they're scraping off the floor? It's it's quite likely. Um, you know, I certainly don't know without knowing all the details of that particular job, but what that plant has done is it's given us markets for uh, small diameter low quality wood uh, so like the little branches on the tree that are all crooked and when I say little I mean going down to like four inches in diameter um, it, since they've come in I've done uh, several uh, scotch pine harvests so scotch pine's a non-native tree that mm-hmm. was planted a lot and it seeds in really well but it grows like a large bush really mm-hmm. twisty and crooked uh, and there's one particular crew out of Gaylord that will uh, buy it and they feed it into this flail machine that grinds it up and chips it and they sell the chips to this new plant. So, you know, we've, we've gone into some scotch, some areas, you know, there'll be 20, 30 acres it's just overtaken with scotch pine and a landowner would like to get that out of there and replant it with something else or maybe just have it as a field, anything but scotch pine. Mm-hmm. And um, we've been able to to harvest that and, and get rid of it. Whereas previously that would have just it they would have had to borne the expense of right. purging it, and now there's some compensation. That right. Every time I look at a at a at a forest, or you know, that we're we're considering doing a harvest, I have to say, well, is it merchantable? And just because you have a group of standing trees doesn't mean that the, there's a, a market for it. And I have to try and determine that and so this mill has has helped in that regard and I've been able to it also it improves the the quality of forest management so before that mill came in I would look at a stand of timber and say okay we're here's the landowner's goals and let's let's just say hypothetically their goals are uh, we want a healthy forest and we're going to focus on cutting the lower quality trees, unhealthy trees. That's good forestry. That's what we should be doing. And, um, well, okay, is that harvest going to be, is it going to have at least 40% of the total volume? Is that going to be composed of saw logs or bolts and no more than 60% pulpwood? And if if I think that that harvest was going to be 65% pulpwood, well, that's probably not merchantable. And if I got the calculation wrong and it turned out to be 65 or 70% pulpwood, I might not be able to sell the timber harvest. And now I've got a bunch of time that's into this project and I, you know, there's, I got to pay for myself. You know, I can't, I want to do good forestry, but I have to pay for myself. I have to put food on the table. So, 
this uh, this new mill has helped with that kind of thing, whereas I'm not worried so much about that. You okay. know, those those nuances. Um, if the job sells for less than I expected, well, that's not good. But at least it's sold. There's still some cash flow. There, yeah, there's it's not be revenue. A, it's <laughs> not like I just went out and worked for two weeks and then there's got absolutely nothing to show for it. Okay. <laughs> uh, so yeah, the the mills really helped in that regard. Um, they've had a they've had a tough time getting started up. They've had a, a lot of breakdowns and problems. But it is an absolutely huge mill. Is it, um, is it? Are these problems? Is it just a function of the newness of the concept, or just in executing? I think in, in executing, you know, it's, this is the. I don't know. I don't know the details well, over it, there, it, but for uh, the listeners, not besmirching yeah. anybody. The, it's, like a it's the largest particle board plant in North America, so there's a lot of engineering that goes into it. They've got 20 acres under roof, so uh, there's for, there's for, a lot yeah, of machinery. For the people listening, is it correct that, um, for those of you in the burbs, uh, IKEA might be one of their big clients or something? They are, I believe IKEA is a if big, not their big biggest. client of theirs, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty so, impressive. So they've... Um, uh, yeah, they've helped me by creating uh, an outlet for low-quality wood products. And that's that's especially important in northern Michigan because there's a lot of ground up here with very poor soil. And they may grow trees, but they're not going to grow to... They're not going to get to be very big trees, and they're not going to live very long. Max potential. Right. Um and so we have the ability to go in, well, for example, grouse. We can create grow, more grouse habitat now than we could before. Um, and, you know, on that note, I ought to say that uh, since we've got some grouse enthusiasts in the room, that uh, that's a bird that in Michigan is doing all right. But if you go to, to Indiana, they're putting it on the endangered species list down there. Uh, like we came up in Ohio, and I know there's almost... They're hard to find. Them. There's just right. a big newsletter out. Um, yeah. yeah, Gross hunters thing. Yeah, exactly. Loyal order of the. The, um, the Grand Poobah sent an email out talking about just that in Indiana. Yeah. And the challenges they're having. And yeah. Um, sounds like a tough road. Well, I mean, we people will love their forests to death, and they've done this in California, where they they want to protect the forest, and um, they protect it so much that they've, you know, forgotten that forests are dependent on change. And most, like all around here, uh, Grayling, Luzerne area, all of these forests are adapted to growing back after wildfires. Mm -hmm. And historically, these areas would burn every, quite frequently, every 40 or 50 years. And if we get a dry spring, there's going to be fires here. There still well, are. Sure. Um, but it makes this winter snowfall. Yeah, it makes this winter snowfall a little worrisome. Yeah, yeah. I I, <laughs> I was just saying to somebody the other day that we could see some good fires this spring because mm -hmm. we're going to have an ex it, extended period of time. The woods with, over by us are yeah. you know thick with stuff that's you know blowdowns from storms that you know nobody's going to run around and pick this stuff up. No, the loggers <laughs> aren't going to pick up that dead yeah. material. And it's, and, you know. Yeah. It's going to sit there, it'll eventually degrade, and it is providing great habitat for various species, but it's still, like, gets dry, and, I mean, it gets dry here on a good day. 
Right. <laughs> you know, with the way the soil so, leaks water. So. there between here and the road is almost all jackpined by half of that's falling down just rotting off at the uh, yeah at the ground, you know. Yeah, well, jack pine is flammable no matter what age it is, or live or dead. or It's like growing fatwood. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, people can, um, you, you know, you can they can love their forest to death. And, and as I said, I, I, I bring this up because the timber industry out west was absolutely decimated in the 90s. Uh and the Roadless Act, then the Wilderness Act did that, plus all the lawsuits. And a majority of the land base out there is owned by the federal government, which tends to be inefficient. Mm -hmm. And uh, occasionally, it, yeah, and it kind of pushed the um, the industry out. And the reason we still have a vibrant timber industry in the eastern United States is because the majority of the land is owned by private citizens, who have a tax burden and uh, are motivated to do something. Um, and, uh, you know, there's certainly a role for preservation. There's certainly a role for uh, parks and natural areas that never get harvested, um, that have minimal impact. But that's not a solution to society's problems. No, that's an exception. But, I mean, like Hartwick oh. Pines that has, am I correct, the last stand in the lower... Peninsula? Um, so there's four old growth forests in Michigan, uh, Estevant Pines, and the very northern tip of the Keweenaw, um, Porcupine Mountains, so that's western Ontonagon, and then there's Hartwick Pines, and then there's a small stand of red pine uh, near the Kirtland Community College, just east of it. Oh, cool. Um, so, would, so those are the old we'd growth. We'd let those be, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but you're talking a you know, grand well, total of a few hundred acres. I was going to very small of, in the yeah. big planet scheme. But. There's 20 million acres of forested forest in Michigan, and so that's a few hundred. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of areas. There, there's certainly scattered old-growth trees that are in, in small, you know, groups and clumps that we don't even, we can't, we don't know about. There's like two or three trees somewhere. Well, what's an old-growth, how big, and you know, what's the characteristics of it? Oh, well, that's another. What's a monarch? Yeah, that's another. <laughs> I mean, is it 80 foot tall, 20 foot or 20 inches around or 40 inches? Or, oh, I would it? say it's got to be, okay, let's go with Bryce Metcalf's definition of old growth. I'd say, you know, 24 inches or larger and over 200 years old. That's what I would go with. I got a few um, over here we can look at before you go. But... <laughs> uh, you know, I know I know a property, uh, it's actually used to be private just became state land. It's west of the high school in Grayling on the west side of the railroad tracks. And I did an inventory in there years ago and there's this one particular stand of white pine. It's only a few acres and it's right on the edge of a swamp and the trees are absolutely incredible, enormous. Um, and um, I like numbers and the volume in on one acre of that stand is more than some of the timber harvests I'll do on 40 acres. Oh my gosh. Really? <laughs> yeah. Now, my theory is that was one of the first areas to get clear cut back in the timber era. So that would be back in the 1850s. Mm -hmm. So that would put it at 150 years old. 100, well, more than that, 170 cool. years old. <laughs> so my point is, is that there, there, 
you know, we're starting to get some areas that are developing old growth characteristics, uh, even though they don't, they were cleared way back in the day. And if you get down to, say, parts of southern Michigan, where that was settled in the, you know, early 1800s, uh, and see maybe there's a patch of farmland and there's a wet corner that the farmer never developed and you know very well you could have trees there that originated in the 1840s so they're getting pretty old I, you know that's I would call that old growth okay <laughs> you know 180 years old that, that's got to be that's old growth cool. <laughs> new cool. old growth right new old growth so that's it's awesome. all how you define that stuff um but yeah, you know, and that's a that's a a good segue into this whole theme that I'm talking about about forestry being sustainable is that something to keep in mind is that um, between 1880 and 1920, almost all of our forests in the entire United States were cut during the dawn of the industrial age to supply a population that's a tenth of what it is now. So what's the difference? Why do we have all this forest now? A lot of it's going international too, isn't it? Yeah, yeah a lot of it was uh, international. But uh, so we, what happened is uh, the advent of the fossil fuels. In 1880, we didn't have gasoline or diesel. We had coal and wood. Mm -hmm. And everything ran off of steam. And if you didn't have access to coal, you used wood. And everything was made out of wood. Now, for energy, we're, we've got multiple sources of energy, and the greatest of which is fossil fuels. So we're having this big discussion about climate change, and that's great. Climate change affects forestry. It seems to be real. I mean, look at this winter. It's pretty mild. Yeah. But, you know, and, and we, we, our technology has advanced so that we have many different sources of energy, aside from wood. But all I can say is that back... Way back then, we exhausted our supply of wood within a 40-year period with a population that's a tenth of what it is now. So the demands for energy consumption are real, and they have to be considered and factored in. And uh, there, there probably isn't any one magic button solution. Solar-powered 747. <laughs> It can only fly above 30,000 feet, though. Yeah, but you don't want to take the red-eye fly on that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Stay on the right side of the planet. The, um, it's just fascinating to consider what you're you're speaking about. and i got a lot of time to think when I'm in the woods I, looking well, at trees. <laughs> you know, it's funny. We, were, we, we had a recent guest, Jim Wren, who's a, a National Forest Service archaeologist. Yep. And... Uh, we were kidding with him that he had definitely one of the coolest jobs in the Northwoods. And he goes, yeah, I get to walk around in the woods. <laughs> That's, and I'm pretty much in the similar shoes well, in, as in a, a different science. But. Right. <laughs> as a forester, when you walk into the woods, you are looking at history. And one of the things that when I'm on a property is I'm trying to, I can often figure out what's happened in the woods in the last 30 or 40 year like i know what signs to look for like well you probably had a harvest 25 years ago and they took this species and that species and um and i'll find homestead sites all over the place from back when when they were trying to live off of the land um railroad grades yeah, i'll find a patch of 
uh, you know, maybe a lilac bush or some myrtle on the ground. I know I'm close to a homestead site. That's one uh, of the cool things about bumping around on our county roads is just the random lilac stands. Yeah. <laughs> that are significant. I, you know, they're not new little, they're just enormous. Yeah, you'll find a lilac bush <laughs> out there and it's all... You know, it might be jack pine growing all around, and you're right. like, How, is this, <laughs> it's you know, like, what? this <laughs> bush belongs in, I think it's somewhere in Asia it's coming yeah, from, what, right? What the mountains, brought this Himalayas here? or something, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, you do have to be a bit of a historian, uh, and then take what you've learned in the past and apply it to the future. Um, and, and that is one of my you know, a big part of my job is to try and predict when, when these trees are going to naturally expire or unnaturally expire and, um, and harvest them before it happens. Um, you know, speaking of lilac bushes, uh, I think one of the biggest challenges that we've got, um, not so much climate change, although that, you know, that's certainly a challenge, but, uh, one that that concerns me more is uh, just invasive insects and diseases. It certainly defined my non-native. my career, non-native. Um, sure. And um, we see that through the river all the time. Yeah, <laughs> you know. It's, yeah, and it's just the land's no different. If I am working next to a subdivision, the woods are just overrun with invasive shrubs. If I'm back a ways away from it, they're not there. Um. And, uh, you know, the landscaping companies are just bringing in this stuff every All day. All the ornamental trees All, and stuff right. that you and, see just taking over fields. But to be fair to them, <laughs> if they go plant some native shrub and then a year later the rabbits eat it, their client's upset with them and they don't get hired. <laughs> so they... so All they about that initial expectation uh, right. set. <laughs> you know, so... And, and you know, it's... Uh, it, it can be a real challenge, and I've, I've found that I've got a lot of my clients kind of have the mindset of their forest is, well, once every 10 years or 12 years or whatever, the forester comes in and does his thing, and we do a harvest here, and we do one there, and then we do the roads, and then we're done. That's it. We're done. And my, I don't think it's that simple. I think the client should, the landowner should take, 10% of what they earn and put it back into the land and treat those invasives when they show up. I'd say 95% of my clients will not go out there and treat the autumn olive or tartarian honeysuckle with herbicide and kill it, which is really the only effective way to... I don't like spraying poison, but you know what? you got to get rid of it. Like you, purple loose drive? Right, like purple <laughs> loose drive. The alternative is unacceptable. But because the alternative isn't looming in front of them and it's coming in several years... They, oh, it's just a bush. It's just an The urgency is not as and imprinted. It, and by the time it is urgent, like, well, here's an example. I had one client spend $35,000 removing uh, autumn olive from a 40-acre field. Whoa. Wow. <laughs> so if wow. 15 years, 10, 15 years prior, he had put on a backpack sprayer and gone there and you know, put some sweat and equity into his property on a weekend, he would have never had to do that. That's wild. And and when it gets to, when the problem gets to be that kind of scale, you're never going to get it under control. You're just, right. you know, you're kind of fighting a tide. 
So well, always it, best to be proactive than reactive. Right. I I, I would Impossible. encourage people to uh, to learn about uh, and you know there's invasives you can do stuff about and there's ones that you can't. Uh, you can't do much about emerald ash borer beach bark disease, but you can do a lot about tartarian honeysuckle and autumn olive. Well, maybe we we'll jump ahead and kind of move into the landowner thing, but I want to kind of soft jump it in that what. So you deal with folks with, you know, maybe maybe 30 acres on the small side and a bazillion on the top side. Where does the average person, the three to five acre property owner, who do they enlist as, as, as an informed advocate? Yeah. Um. Or just as an educational source. I mean, how... I'd love to know how I could better take care of my property. Right, with, with yeah, with small, yeah, and that's a, a niche that's really poorly filled and poorly met. Um, so, most of the counties in the northern Lower Peninsula have a conservation district forester, which is a a position that's paid for by the government, and this the job of that of that person is to go out and meet with forest owners and landowners and try and educate them and get them pointed in the right direction and basically be a catalyst for information. Okay. And, um, you know, there's certainly a lot you can get off of the internet, but there's nothing beats, uh, you know, a real person who has experience with that. And um, uh, a lot of the funding for these, uh, we call them CDs, for the CD positions, you know, their, their role is to promote forestry, but that doesn't mean that they won't, they're going to ignore uh, small landowners like what you've talked about. Okay. So, you know, that's that's a step, uh, that's probably your your best option for getting a real live person. Okay. <laughs> um, but the resources are out there, you yeah. just have to go to a different venue to, to find them. Right. Now okay. you might be able to convince a um, uh, you know a retired uh, government forester or maybe even some um, consulting foresters to go out to your property for a fee and you know you pay them some money for some advice. Um, uh, you you might also lure them there with a six pack of beer. Uh. <laughs> we'll let it that out and we'll just keep that in mind yeah <laughs> well, there's a district in Gaylord yeah that, uh, I think uh, what's uh, her name is uh, Tabitha Odell, uh, Odell. Yes. yeah yep. she's been here yeah, yeah she came down to talk to you about some uh, oak oak wilt yeah oak wilt yeah. yeah she looked at some trees for that one time um, and it's, so it's there and she's talked at a hot stove before too yeah yeah, I mean, you know, I'm kind of, my, my niche is, um, you know, landowners with larger tracts who want to manage their forests. Um, but uh, most most property owners, uh, as you said, own smaller lots than that. And, and they're not, they're never going to do a timber harvest. Uh, they don't even have that option. But yet, uh, they still want to keep their healthy forest. You know, on that note, one of the um, I did have this client once, and um, he uh, he owns this woodlot, and uh, he wanted to thin it, and he wanted to do it right, but doing it right involved cutting low-value, poor-quality trees, and at the time, there was no market for that. So he and all his buddies just got together, and over a 10-year period, they just 
cut firewood. And, had a chainsaw party. Right, had a chainsaw <laughs> party, and um, and uh, you know, twenty years go by, and and I came in. I'm walking around the woods. And I'm like, wow, these are some really nice quality trees. And I'm looking at the stumps. And I'm like, well, that rotten stump looks twenty years old, and that one looks five, and. <laughs> I don't really know what's going on out here. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you can do, you can greatly improve the health of your forest uh, just by, you know, by just walking around with a chainsaw and looking at the trees, start looking up at the crown of the trees, let's see if it's healthy, and then uh, harvest a, a low-quality tree yourself and cut it up for firewood. And if you're not burning firewood, you should be. If you're concerned about climate change, you should be burning firewood. Okay. It's carbon neutral. Right. And that's a good point because I think some folks gloss over that. <laughs> it's, it's a very good point. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, the, the whole carbon, I have very mixed feelings about the whole carbon thing. I mean, the, the winters in my lifetime are definitely milder. So there's, yep. there's changes going on. You can't deny it. Um, changes but then constant. when I look at the proposed <laughs> solutions, I just roll my eyes. Uh, you know, they're talking about carbon taxes. They're talking about cap and trade. You know, they're talking about paying forest owners for capturing carbon. Well, they want to create a, and, an and intangible like, market of credits. That's a very interesting concept, but... But it, this is life, not a board game. I want to see. <laughs> I want to see the equation that shows me that these policies are reducing the amount of carbon right. that's in the atmosphere. Right? Are they actually addressing the red now, issue? Now, if you take an area that was not forest and you turn it into forest, that's a measurable change that pulls carbon out of the atmosphere. But if you take a forest and it's just forest and it continues to be forest. You're not changing anything. Well, not just because you bought it. Yeah, <laughs> and somebody oh, paid you money now, so for it. So I get the credit for it. Right. <laughs> it's like, but, you know, not net new. <laughs> if you're if you got a a propane tank outside and you decide, hey, I'm going to put in a wood stove. Keep the propane by all means. You know, you're not going to be there to put, fill your wood stove. But if if you got a wood stove, every time you put a piece of wood in there, that's carbon that's been in the cycle. It's been in the cycle for hundreds of thousands of years. It's been rotating from land to water to air, in and out, in and out. And it's carbon neutral. And it's from a tree that, that grew. And as long as you're not taking forest and turning it into parking lot, it's all right. You know, that you can, well, you can harvest timber on the same acres over and over and over again. Uh, but it, it's, it's the land conversion that people are afraid of. But on that note, Michigan has gone from 18 million acres of forest to 20 million acres in the past 30 years. And that trend is going across the nation. Uh, and that's not, it, it's, it's in part due to good forest management, but it's also in part due to a lot of the um, marginal farmland has been allowed to revert back to forest. Resume. And the good farmland downstate you know, is more productive than it ever was. I was just going to ask you, this is not a blanket average, but rather a yeah. geographically specific based on environment? Right. So if you live on the outskirts of, you know, some really desirable area outside of Aspen, Colorado, you've probably seen the urban sprawl just keep going and going, and you might have a very different perspective than what I'm talking about. But when mm -hmm. you look at the numbers overall, that's not the trend. 
Uh, and it may that may reverse. You know, way back in the 1860s and 70s, they thought they would never run out of forest. They were completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Grayland. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. We'll never run out of trees. Or fish right, we'll blood. never run out of trees. Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's totally possible. We've done it once already. We could do it again. Uh, so be cautious. But, you know, overall, the state of forestry is pretty good. Um, but interestingly enough, you've got areas like uh, uh, California where their forest is going up in smoke and turning into carbon and contributing to the atmosphere. Maybe that should have been lumber instead of smoke. But. Yeah. Well, and, you know, too, a lot of that's not even forest. Yeah. A lot of it's savanna. Or oh, you, like <laughs> southern uh, yeah. California, all the chaparral, chaparral uh, hills. You. Yes. You, you know, yeah, it's never going to grow trees. It's just, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, it grows a shrub, and then five years later, it's ready to burn again. It's a very brittle <laughs> shrub. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Hey, so before we go away, um, we'll do other selfish homeowner questions. Um, talk about the firewood process. How somebody, um, how do you want to rotate in and adjust for use without emptying your complete wood bin every year? How, how, does, how does one prepare themselves and, and take that on? I mean, Richard's perfected. He's got some kind of graduate course he teaches on Yeah, that, he's but. ahead of the game. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've got people like Richard that uh, plan way ahead and are successful. And so they, yeah, he'll have multiple wood piles that are all close to where he needs them to be. And he'll burn one wood pile and stack on the other one. And his idea is that uh, by the time he... He's burning a chunk of wood that's probably one and a half or two years old. Some of that stuff I burned this year is six years old. Six years old? My Like I said, gosh. he's taking it to a whole nother level, just... man. It's just, <laughs> it's where we all want to yeah. be. <laughs> I, yeah, well, that's exactly, that's where I want to be. Uh, you know, the rest of us, uh, or you can, if you order your firewood in the spring, uh, you know, or, or in the winter, uh, by... By October, November of the following year, it's it's ready to go. Okay. If you've stacked it, if you, you don't want it just lying in a pile, it's got to be stacked. You, and I'm assuming you don't want it in contact with the dirt. Right. You put some uh, runners on the ground, but have it Skids off the ground a little whatever, bit. Yeah. Stack it, and and it needs to get air moving around it. Uh, I'll see people. They build these sheds and they put it in the shed, but the air's not circulating. It's not moving around in the shed, and so the wood doesn't dry very well. Um, Do you alt stack? I don't stack. Oh, the alt stack? Alt yeah, alternate I mean, it? The... Two, two this way, two that way, two this way, two that way type of thing to, to promote the air circulation? No, that's too much work. It seems like it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Looks cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe on the end of my stack, I'll do that to keep it from collapsing. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, I mean, the real key is to just, just get the wood as early as you can and, and get it stacked somewhere where it could be out in the open. In fact, open is best. Um, and, um, you know, just because I, you, you could get just, the sun and the right, wind. Right. Get the sun and the wind moving around. So you just cover it with a tarp or something to keep the rain well, and snow off it? Well, it. It's not a bad idea to cover the tarp to cover it, but I wouldn't tarp the whole thing. You want the sides open. Hmm. That air's got to flow mm -hmm. around. It's really, the wind and the air does does it more. What's interesting is so so last 
last summer uh, I had green firewood and I, I thought I'm going to, because I'm selling a lot of it, I thought I'm going to cut a big, big pile and then, uh, and then you know, to throw it in my trailer and, and sell it to people. Oh, what I found was, you know, in the middle of the summer, it's like mid-June and it's nice and warm out and the wind's blowing, plenty of sunny weather. Uh, the wood that I cut up and split, the outer layers would dry very quickly. I mean, mm -hmm. literally within a, a week and a half, two weeks. And they'd oh, be wow. dry, like ready to go. You could burn it. But you go in a foot and it's just as wet as it ever was. You go in two feet and it's growing mold. <laughs> so you really got to be so proactive on rotation? I just think you got to stack your wood so the air like can get in. like wine barrels? Or? Like, well, you don't want a huge <laughs> pile. You want rows. So okay. if you had... Two rows two, in each length is 16 inches, and you got two rows that are next to each other. That's about good. But if you have four rows stacked all together, this inner rows aren't getting dried out. The air is not getting to them. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so covering it is is good, but I would really only cover the top. I wouldn't cover the sides. And the sooner you get your wood, the better. But if you get it really up till, if you if you like, I would not advise ordering firewood later than the end of june okay um but having said that guess who my customers are they're yeah. not you know i got lucky with richard late, Most the of late them august people procrastinators <laughs> uh and they want me to get them dry season wood so i'm not gonna stack uh you know 600 face cords of wood and then and sell it. I'm just not that passionate about firewood. Gotcha. <laughs> well, I'll let you stay a year or two so, ahead. So, so yeah, I, my wood is going to be, uh, it's it's in an eight-foot length, and it's sitting out air drying, and then I cut it up into firewood. So I don't tell people that it's seasoned, because in my world, seasoned wood is something that's been sitting on my porch for the duration of the summer. Gotcha. Uh, I, I tell them it's partly seasoned. And it'll burn, but it's not as good as wood that's been stacked and bought in six months in advance. Tell me about it. I, yep. have, to, I have to cheat and, you know, mix and match. Yeah. You know, I've got some some great dry, wonderful oak that I've, you know, am nursing, and then I've got this other stuff that is not really ready for prime time. Right, and so you you throw in a... A wet log with the dry ones, and um, if you, and that's fine if you do that. Make you sure learn, you clean your chimney It's a new way of learning to balance, but I'd prefer to be a little more proactive. Right, right. <laughs> no, you just gotta get ahead of the game, and right. you you probably don't need to go as far as Richard. If you can get a year ahead, then you'll be good. Okay. Well, six year stuff was my last load I got from that. When I bought the semi load of eight footer, uh, I'm not sure I'll do that again because you know it's too damn old to screw with it. Yeah. <laughs> When, when Richard was telling us about um, get together to talk with you, he, he also said that, um, and I want to touch on this before we wrap, but uh, your wife uh, does some seminars and some presenting. What? Yeah. What, is, is she in the same topic field as you, or is she? I know she's by education a, another forester, but what? Um, what's her flavor? So, uh, my wife, Susan, um, we met at Michigan Tech in college. And she's from Texas. I'm from Maine. So, there's a, there's a story there. Met in the middle. Yep. Uh, <laughs> but um, 
she worked for the Forest Service for a little while, and um, then when we had kids, she came to work with me and help run the office. And um, my every forester has a mentor, just like I think any profession, you have some kind of older mentor sure. who advises you. So my mentor was this guy called Jim Burns, and uh, Jim Jim liked to record and file everything and every number that he ever had. And uh, he kind of fell into timber taxes, and so the IRS treats uh, income from a timber sale, uh, it, it can be treated as a capital gain if you file it correctly. Uh, and you have as to... As opposed to? As opposed to regular income. Okay. Okay. So, uh, big difference there. Uh, that's the first savings. And, and then, the, um, to do this, you have to set up a depletion account for the property. So, when somebody inherits or acquires a property, uh, we figure out how much timber they've got on there. And then, we split the land value between the bare land, any structures that are there, and the timber. So not unlike a capital expense being depreciated over a course of time? Exactly. And then um, when that individual does a timber harvest and sells the timber, that's not pure profit because they had to pay money to get the timber. Right. And so what my wife Susan does is she figures all this out, and she learned it from my mentor, who recently recently passed away. Uh, But... uh, so she does that. She also does uh, uh, helps loggers with their timber taxes, and it's it's one of these IRS tax codes that's just kind of tucked away, uh, and it's not really. There's a lot of people that don't take advantage of it, and they should. And there are substantial savings, um, and so it's a really good service that she's been able to offer, and not just for my clients. She gets, I was going to say, this goes hand in hand. Oh Yeah, it works really well with my business, but she, uh, frankly, the, I'm probably, I provide her with a minority of her clients. She works for landowners in Wisconsin and Michigan, and she gets a lot of referrals from other consultants and from loggers, and she's got quite a number of loggers of, as clients for herself, too. So she's found this little, we've both found little niches that that aren't common but she's definitely got a a, a you know a, a rare one <laughs> well as with with anybody that and you can tell by the way you talk the passion you have for what you do and i'm assuming your wife is of the same function and it's just it's neat that people can get excited and and be excited about their careers and their impact and and convey that with passion my wife loves to save people money, and uh, which is funny because her father was an IRS auditor. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> kind of ironic. Okay, it was just kind of a scale of yeah. balance. There. <laughs> uh, so yes, we don't know who's exactly listening. So yes, we love everybody. <laughs> that's great. That's awesome. So yeah, that's uh, uh, it's been. Uh, it's kind of it's a fun ride. She's able to to save people lots of money. She really enjoys it. She's tried to teach me timber taxes, but oh, I just I just I'd rather pound my head on the wall. Right. Well, well, <laughs> if, I'm if, not wired that way either. <laughs> if somebody were interested in in learning about 
those types of scenarios outside the services that they might solicit you for uh, more in your wife's field, how, how would they find out? Uh, well, you know, they can call our office number, Metcalf Forestry. Oh, okay. uh, our office number is 989-348-3596. We've got a website, too. Um, and it, it's all linked together there, Bryce and Susan Metcalf with Metcalf Forestry. Um, you know, and then for for forestry services for landowners, um, the Association of Consulting Foresters is a nationwide organization of uh, consultants like me that cover pretty much every corner of the nation. Um, and, uh, you know, is we that all... kind of a neutral field site sort of thing to say? Okay, I live in this area. Who's a good resource in my neighborhood? They've actually on their website. They've got a map, and you can click on a certain area, okay, and, and it'll below. pop up the foresters that that work in that area. And, and um, you know, uh, you know, here in Michigan, I don't know if there's like fifteen or twenty of us or so. Okay, um, but you all then, share that certification or designation yeah or so association of consulting foresters it's a group of foresters that work specifically for private landowners so we, we don't work for a sawmill or the state or the government um you know we are there to represent the landowner's interests um and then uh, a lot of sawmills and uh industries also have foresters that work for them uh, and they offer services to public to private landowners, and um, you know most of them are very good people. They work, they represent their profession okay. very well. Um, but sometimes you need someone that's in your corner, uh, and that's where the consultant comes in. Uh, but another resource in Michigan that I I previously mentioned is the conservation districts, uh, and that's actually a really good one because you can. Uh, you get this conservation district forester and they go out to your property and they look at it and figure out the landowner's goals and then they put out this this email and it'll I get these emails every day and uh, they describe... So you guys are networking with each other as a natural oh, yeah. existence? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and uh, I'll get this email and it'll say, well, there's a landowner in this county and they've, you know... It won't give me the specifics of like the landowner's name or anything, but it'll just say generally this is what's going on. Are you interested or not? And I might respond. Industry foresters might respond. A logger might respond, and the landowner can decide what he wants to oh, do that's from awesome. there. Hmm. Um, it's a great the, information brokerage device. <laughs> yeah, no, they they provide a good service. Um, I've been well. You can get it from multiple different angles, right? Too, and you're honest. getting it from somebody who has no vested interest in that particular piece of property. Bingo. You know, so yeah. Uh, and and I like it because as a you know one man army, I can't go out to every property and meet everybody, and you know I have to pick and choose which sure. jobs I'm going to work on. Oh, full and, respect, and 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 for any listeners, Bryce is blessed in that. He's a very successful and robust business, and I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to make it think like we're doing a cold call. Hey, everybody, call Bryce tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I've actually downsized my business in recent years. Uh, it just got well, you, to be you too have much. The, you have the comfort of a full plate. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and, and the great thing about that is you get fed and nothing spills on the floor. Right. <laughs> so, that's a good thing. 
That's a good thing. Thank you so much for taking time out and speaking with us, educating our listeners, and definitely educating me. So uh, thank you. Yeah, well, thanks a lot for having me. And um, I am uh, never opposed to uh, giving people education about forestry, my profession, even if I don't work for them. I'm happy to get people pointed in the right direction. Uh, and, I mean, any time that I can um, increase somebody's knowledge about forestry, uh, it's a good thing. Uh, good fun. Hey, thanks, everybody, for joining us. Uh, again, as a reminder, our Hot Stove series uh, every other week on Thursdays uh, until the start of trout season. Uh, we'll try to have uh, diverse and entertaining guests uh, some with timeless information, others with topical information. So good fun to follow. Uh, until then, be safe, have fun, and mind your backcast. <laughs>